Well, if you have a Bible with you, and uh, I hope that you do, uh, you can open with me to Philippians, where we've been walking through uh, the letter to the Philippians here. If you need a Bible, there are some in the middle of the room. By all means, grab one. Uh, we're on about page 570 of those Bibles, uh, so you can uh, open up there. Uh, we've been walking through this letter now for a few weeks, and uh, we've made it through the first chapter. That's pretty good. It's a good start. Uh, and one of the reasons that we are highlighting, uh, that, that I'm highlighting, you know, bring your Bible, have a Bible with you, if you have one, open it up here, is because I actually have, have stopped or slowed down uh, putting Scripture up on the screens. And there's a very deliberate reason for that. It started a few weeks ago uh, practically because we zipped through two chapters in a morning. And so to have poor John on the screen clicking, or Joanne today clicking to get through two chapters really fast is just not a good thing. Uh, But more than that, even more important than that, is we want to know how to find things in our Bible. And so there's something about, even if it's opening up on your iPad or phone and getting to your YouVersion app, which is my personal favorite one on my iPad for what that's worth, or if we open up our, our physical, like, they still make them like this, actually, with paper, and they're, you know, they're good. They work just as well. Uh, it's a little harder to get from place to place there than a, a digital one, I suppose. But, but when we open up our Bibles, I, I, I want us to see these things. I want us to see how the things are connected. I don't want you to have to rely on, on me or whoever is speaking to say, this is here, trust me. I want to show you how we got there as well, because that's more important, that we can navigate our way through our Bible. So uh, if you have one, open up there. Last week we finished uh, Philippians chapter 1 and we saw Paul move from uh, kind of introducing this, this almost love letter to the church. This is his, it seems like it's his favorite church in Philippi. And he wrapped up and he moved from, hey, I'm so thankful for you. This is how we're praying for you. This is going on. This is, this is my attitude for me. Uh, living as Christ, dying as gain is where we were last week. But in verse 27, he moves into teacher mode. He kind of sets aside the, uh, kind of the, the, the love letter a little bit and steps into teach mode. In verse 7, he says, depending on the translation, he says, Hey, only this, that there's one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. A different translation highlights, uh, highlights the same verse a bit different. He says, Hey, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gets into it with this church and reminds them and reminds us that, that since we have been changed by the gospel, since we've been adopted into the family of God, we have a new identity. We have a new citizenship. We have a new passport. We're part of God's kingdom, and that affects how we live our lives. And so he encourages the church then and, and now as well in these verses 27 to the end of chapter 1 there to stand together against opposition that they're, they're bumping into from around the church. Remember, the Philippi was a, a Roman colony. It was a very Roman city. If you went there, you would have recognized Rome in this town. And so naturally, instead of saying Jesus is Lord, the town is saying Caesar is Lord. There's going to be some opposition there. So he's saying, hey, stand firm in this. He uses even military language because there would have been lots of retired military there from Rome. He says, stand together, hold your ground in this. Contend together, uh, work together hard at this gospel thing. And the language there is is athlete language. We said it's like like the offensive and defensive lines of a football team that that are contending with one another, trying to gain a yard or two yards at a time, or a rugby scrum trying to to push and get that ball out of the back, or a 
tug of war game where every single person hanging on to that rope's got to pull or you're in big trouble. He's saying, stand together, contend together with one spirit, one accord, one mind. So now as we move into chapter 2, Paul still has unity in mind as he teaches these things. But he shifts from that unity against the external forces towards internal unity amongst one another and the church. So let me start reading Philippians chapter 2 for us. I'll read verses 1 through 4. This is perhaps one of the more famous passages on humility. Paul writes this, So, or since, or therefore... If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, and having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul shifts and starts this sort of internal examination with these four if statements. But something's a bit lost when we move from Greek to English in that these these if should probably be better understood as, as since or because statements. One writer says we could think of these ifs as if as indeed is the case. There's certainty here. These aren't questions like, hey, hopefully you found some unity here, so this was true. But rather he's saying, these are true things. Because of these things, you can have unity. And he says these, these four statements are the basis for unity in the church. He says there, there is encouragement in Christ. We have the, the blessing of knowing him and being found in him. He's saying there is consolation of love. Jesus' love comforts us. He's ours and we're his. And and we get to know God's love and and his love helps us and makes us love others. He says there is fellowship with the Spirit. This word fellowship is the same word from verse 5 in chapter 1 where Paul talked about his, his partnership with the church. This is a, a united front. That, so not only is Paul united and partnered and, and striving towards something that costs with the church, but he's saying, hey, we're also partnered with the Spirit of God who helps us and motivates us and keeps us going. Finally, he says, there is shared affection and mercy because Jesus has loved us so well with an amazing love. This mercy or sympathy or compassion that we get from his love that we give to others comes from the source of all love, mercy, sympathy, and compassion, God himself. So Paul dives into this chapter, moves into this section, being very warm and pastoral. Again, he he loves this church and he wants to remind them of the blessings that come from Christ before he challenges them. Because verse 2, he starts and he gives the only command in this passage where he says, complete my joy, or make my joy complete. Paul wants his favorite church to be united. He knows that that is is the most important thing after the gospel, is that they are united around this thing. Another New Testament writer, John, says something similar in 3 John 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this to know that my children are walking in the truth that they are together, that they're headed on this road together, that just brings me joy. As a parent, when your kids get along, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Sometimes the little rugrats, they, it's like they're friends even. They can play together, they don't fight, they're not throwing stuff at each other, hypothetically, of course. 
It's a, it's a brilliant thing as a parent to see or a leader to see that church together. So what does this unity look like? So he gives us four examples. He says, hey, think the same way. Have the same mind. Don't, don't all you know, commit to just being sheep and thinking one way because someone told you to think that way. But be unified in mission and vision, the way you're thinking, the way you're viewing life. Have the same love. Be of full accord or united in spirit and be of one mind. Be focused. Know where you're headed. Know how you're going to get there and work together, strive together, contend together. Because Paul knows the opposite is true, that rivalry will split churches. Rivalry will divide congregations. And it's something that we need to be aware of in every area of our lives, but here in our church as well. That rivalry will, will split us in ways that are not helpful. He goes on, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says the aim here is Christ-centered humility. Jesus' example for us was that he had, he had all the glory. He had every glory. And yet, as we're about to see, he made himself nothing for our sakes. And so we need to evaluate this under this word. Do, or do we uh, operate out of selfish ambition or conceit? Do we need to be recognized? Do I need attention? Do I need people to think that I'm better than the last guy who stood up here and taught? Or whatever it might be. Or am I outward focused? Do I, do I care more about the concerns of others, the needs of others, than my own? One writer says, There will never be unity in a congregation apart from people walking in humility. In Romans twelve sixteen, Paul puts it this way. He says, Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. There's a connection there between agreement and unity and humility. A humble person will contribute to the unity of the church. And humility is a key theme throughout this second chapter in Philippians 2. And it will be at the heart of every gospel-centered church. In just a minute, we're going to see Jesus' example of humility for us in verses 6 through 11. But before we do, uh, this key of humility is is so important that, that John Stott says to us, at every stage of our Christian development... And in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And so it's good for our own souls to to wrestle with this. What is bubbling up inside of me? Is it it pride? Is it conceit? Is it these things about, about wanting more for me? Or is there humility? Wanting to serve others, to love others, to to help others grow. So we need to also know how to grow in humility for our own good, for the unity of our church, and for the good of our witness to a world around us too. We need to know how to grow in humility. So one pastor named Tony Morita has put together a list of a few disciplines that are necessary for us to, to grow and shape and work on our humility. So let me share them with you as someone who hasn't got it all figured out, but rather someone who also needs to grow in this in my own life too. He says uh, one of the first ways we can grow in humility is by reflecting on the cross of Christ. A song we often sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, reminds us that it was our sin that held Jesus on the cross. There's no pride at the foot of the cross. We're all broken. We all contributed to that. So we can grow in our humility by remembering Jesus went to the cross for us. Second, we can grow in humility by reflecting on the glory of Christ who Christ has become because of his work on the cross. And we'll see this in a small way to begin in verses 9 to 11 in a bit. 
Third, we can grow in humility by reflecting on God's word because the Bible shows us Christ's humility and his exaltation. When we come to the Bible, we need to come to it with humility. Not assuming, well, I've read this chapter before, I know what's here, let's just get on with it so I can check it off the list and get on with my day. But we come looking for God to speak to us. For the last few weeks, I've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke with a couple of friends here, and we've been going chapter by chapter, working through a, a, a digital reading plan on version. so in both places, I guess. But part of this plan, uh, there's a, you know, memorize a couple of verses, read a chapter from Luke, and then reflect and respond to it. And sort of the template for response that this plan has given us is, is called a hear journal. So we highlight with the H a verse that stood out for us. We explain what's going on in, in that passage. So maybe it's, well, Jesus is teaching a parable here. Uh, we apply it to our own lives, and then we respond to the passage of how that will affect us going forward. And so one of the brilliant things about doing this, again, we're in, I think, chapter 17 this morning, so it's been two and a half weeks or so, is, is we all come to the text knowing that that respond piece is coming after we read the chapter. So you come with that humility. We come with that humility of, okay, God, Luke is fairly familiar, his gospel. What are you going to teach me out of this today? And what are you going to stir up in my heart that I need to work on today? And the brilliant thing about doing this together is now I've got two other guys that I know how to better pray for because of what God's stirring up in their life. And I know that I've got two guys that are praying for me too as I say, listen, I am a disaster in this piece. And God reminded me of this again this week. So we need to come to God's word with humility and ask him to continue to speak to us and teach us through it. Fourth, he says, we grow in humility through prayer. Praying is a humbling act, isn't it? You have to humble yourself to pray. Because we're saying to God, listen, I need something here. Something beyond me to help me, to, to, to bring peace, to give me answers or whatever else. And as we pray, we do what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5. We, we cast our cares on the Lord. We cast our anxieties on God. And finally, we can grow in humility through serving others. To put others ahead of ourselves, just like this passage says. The early church grew because they served a different kind of king. They lived as citizens of this new kingdom, and they lived lives worthy of the gospel, and we are called to do the same. Now, the rest of chapter 2 gives us four examples of this kind of humility. And it starts out with this amazing passage where Paul lifts up the humility and the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. And as we read this passage of of Jesus' work, we should uh, be led to want to imitate his example, to emulate his example, and to also, it should bring us to a place of worship and adoration of him as well, as Lord of all. So let me read it for us, starting at verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And, he, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's Jesus' example for us. How countercultural is it? The challenge for us that Paul gives us here is to, to adopt Jesus as our model. 
his, his death as our central outlook and our central mindset for our lives. Instead of living to get more and more and more and more, instead we are called to imitate Christ who came and he, he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. This, I think, is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. It's a very succinct gospel message. It's, it's, it flows nicely. And so I would challenge you, uh, if you are looking for something to memorize, pick this one. I've printed it out on some half sheets at the back, grab one on your way out and tape it to the mirror, or tape it to something, and review it often so that it's with us, it's in your heart. These verses seem like they might be an early hymn or an early creed. This might have been something that the, the first churches used as, as a worship song or, or something. That's Maybe, it seems like it might be there. Notice how it's structured, and here too is why I want you to be looking at this in your own Bibles. Uh, the one, the Bible I've got in front of me has it as just sort of half a paragraph, but, but there's, there's explicit and intentional structure here. Verse 6 starts with God and eternity. Verse 11 finishes the same way with God and his glory. And there's a hinge in the middle on verse 9 where Paul says, therefore, or since, or because. You can circle that in there. It's okay to write in your Bibles too. Let's circle that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's the hinge of this whole passage. Now, one could write volumes on these few verses, but we're going to just do a quick sort of high-level view through them. These verses, verses 6 through 11, they teach us both doctrine and ethics. It emphasizes for us the humility of Jesus who became a servant and and died on our behalf for the glory of God. Now, because of his work on the cross and the resurrection that followed, he's now exalted as our true king, our true savior, and our example. When we come and look at the cross, uh, one pastor commentator, D.A. Carson, says we can view the cross from five perspectives, probably at least five, but he lists five for us. The first is we can look at the cross from God's perspective, that Jesus died as a payment for our sins. First John 2 talks about that a little more explicit than here, uh, that Jesus came and absorbed God's wrath and turned away God's rightful anger towards us for our sin. The second perspective is, is Christ's perspective itself. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly and said in Luke 22, not my will, but your will be done. He came and was given an assignment. And as Mark 10 says, he came to fulfill that assignment and give his life as a ransom for many. This text in Philippians also highlights Jesus' perfect obedience, which is, which is a major theme of John's gospel as well. And Paul reminds us that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross in verse 8 that we're going to get to. We can view the cross from from Satan's perspective. If we flip to the back of the book in Revelation chapter 12, we see that the cross is Satan's defeat. We can look at it from sin's perspective. The cross is the means by which our debt has been paid for. Finally, we can look at it from our own perspective. We acknowledge all these other things are true, all these other ways of, of seeing what has been done on the cross are true. We can come and we can treasure the love and justice of God as well as the substitutionary life and death of Jesus. We cling to his victory over Satan and sin, but we also note that the cross is a, is a supreme standard of behavior for us to imitate as well, as we follow Jesus' example. And in this place, this is what Paul is more specifically writing about, where he says, have this mind among yourselves, in verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. And so even though these verses, these this this beautiful hymn or creed are are loaded with theology and ethics as we mentioned we need to remember why paul's writing this letter if you remember when we started we didn't say we said that paul isn't writing to correct the church unlike 
basically every other letter he wrote. He isn't writing to, to make an argument or start a debate or start a fight, but he's writing this letter to remind the church that they can adore Jesus. They can emulate him, and, and these things that he's writing should lead us to worship. Tony Marita again says, as a result of adoring and emulating Christ, we will experience unity as a people. Unity isn't the result of preaching on unity, but rather it's the result of people adoring and emulating Jesus. The more we behold his glory and imitate his character, the more unified we will be as a church. Additionally, this hymn reminds us not only of the pattern we have to follow, but also the power we possess to emulate Christ. Not only do we need Jesus' example, but we also need his death and his resurrection. We fail to serve God and others perfectly, but Christ died for self-absorbed and self-glorifying people like us. Amen and amen. And he rose on our behalf and now empowers us to follow his example. So let's jump into these verses. In verse 5, depending on the translation you have in front of you, we are so spoiled as English speakers and readers to have just a broad array of translations that we can use. But this was in a bunch of ways. Uh, one says, you know, make your, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. What we read from the English standard says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, have the same attitude Jesus had. Think of yourself the way Jesus thought of himself in the message. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus in the NIV. All kind of surrounding the same idea. And Paul's commending the attitude and, and kind of commanding the church here. That we need to have the same attitude as Jesus so that we will stimulate humility and unity in the church. But there's a corporate element to this language too. He's not just saying, you individual, get more humble. I don't know that that being commanded to be more humble works. But he's not just saying, hey, work on this in your own hearts, though he is. But he's saying, hey, as the church, you need to aspire to this and pursue this attitude together as well. And so as we prepare to look at this, again, brilliant hymn of Christ, keep this point in mind. And we need to ask ourselves regularly, is this, is the attitude of Christ my attitude as well? Is this the way I want to live or strive to live? Do I go through, through life trying to get and get and get and collect more and more and more? Or do I go through life trying to give and give and give and serve and serve and serve? Corporately, is this our mindset as a church, as a congregation, to serve and serve and serve? Are we a group of people that's known for our humility and compassion? Important questions that I'm not sure we can answer in a morning, but ones that need to keep rattling through our minds. So through this letter, imitation and following others' example is a theme, especially in chapter 2. So Paul starts with our perfect example, Jesus. These verses 6 through 11 break nice and cleanly. Speakers always love when verses just kind of fall apart into two points for us. We're going to look at Christ's humiliation and then Christ's exaltation. So, verse 6 to 8 first. The opening phrase where Paul says of, you know, have this mindset of yourselves, that, uh, the same mindset as Christ, who exists in the very form of God, is a really important doctrinal point as we start. See, we're seeing Paul speak to both the pre-existence of Jesus, that he was like God, and the divine nature of Jesus, that he is God. 
The second half of verse 6, Paul also points to the divinity of Jesus where he says uh, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. John in his gospel writes that Jesus called God his own father, making himself equal with God. Other Bible writers highlight Jesus' pre-existence uh, existing before time in many other places. Uh, John 8, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 that we read to start our service. In John chapter 1, he writes this for us. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. He's saying Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God. Jesus was not created And that separates the Christian worldview from many other religions and worldviews on this fundamental point, that Jesus is God and was not created. It's important, too, for us to see that Paul doesn't say that that he appeared as God, but rather that Jesus existed in the form of God. He's saying Jesus continued to be in very nature and essence God, which is just what the writer of Hebrews said, too, in Hebrews 1. The word form here doesn't speak to kind of an external appearance or outward shape, but, but he's talking about the essential attributes. He's talking about the, the inner nature, that Jesus had that same essential attributes, those same inner nature as God did. And just another verse, in verse 7, Paul uses the same word of form, saying that Jesus was in very nature a slave. He went from God and he added this slave nature to himself. He was both fully human and fully divine, which is one of those fantastic mysteries of the faith of how Jesus did both at one time. But that's what the Bible teaches. Fully God, fully human. And so in every generation since Christ walked the earth, we've had to contend for the biblical view of who Jesus is and what he did. Today we'll still hear things like, you know, maybe he was a good teacher, maybe he was a prophet, he was a good man. Here's a good example maybe for us to follow. Just the idea of who Jesus was is what really matters, all of which are false. We must, as Paul challenged us last week, stand firm, contend for the faith, and defend the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to keep teaching these things to those around us, to our kids uh, who are growing up in a world where we're just a phantom Christ or Christ is a, a simple person, a mere man, a funny religious sage are good enough. If we go back to the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 6 says, hey, when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, in everything you do, teach these things. And so we need to do that with the person and work of Jesus. In verse 7, we read that Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing. So we've got Jesus as God and, and being the very nature and essence of God and having the same rights and privileges as the creator of the universe, but then he emptied himself to come to us. He let go of his divine rights. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He he veiled his deity, but he didn't void his deity. He added humanity, but he didn't surrender his deity. He was both at one time. One writer illustrates this idea of Jesus emptying himself by relaying a story that he heard from an African missionary. Let's paraphrase this way. I I think it's helpful for us. The story is that in in this one particular uh, village in Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the whole town. And as chief, he gets the ceremonial headdress and he gets the, the ceremonial robes so that he's recognized as chief. Well, one day, a man was carrying water out of the, the shaft of a deep well and fell back in and broke his leg so he couldn't climb himself out of the well. So he laid there, helpless at the bottom. Now, for someone to go down and rescue him, 
They would have to climb down using, there were kind of like steps built into the side of the walls of this well. Climb down, pick the man up, throw him over his shoulder, and then climb back up this sort of makeshift ladder. But because no one else could carry this man up like this, the chief was called. The strongest one in the village was called. So when he saw the plight of the man, he, he took off the headdress, took off the ceremonial robes, he climbed down to the bottom, picked the guy up, put him on his shoulder, and brought him to safety. He did what no one else could do. All stories break down somewhere and are imperfect examples. But this is what Jesus did for us. He came to rescue us. He came to do what, what no one else could do. He laid aside his heavenly glory, like the chief did, so that he can save us. Now, considering the example, did the chief stop being the tree, chief when he took off his headdress and took off his ceremonial clothes? Of course not. Did Jesus stop being God when he came to rescue us? Of course not. Next we read, Jesus assumed the form of a slave. The slave in, in this world, in the Greco-Roman world, was deprived of even the most basic human rights. And so Jesus gave up his rights that he rightfully held and became a slave, became nothing. The creator of the universe made himself nothing, and he identified himself with the lowest of society. Mark 10 reminds us, Christ did not come to be served, but to come and serve. And we see this vivid picture of this in John chapter 13, where Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples, and, and nobody's come to wash their feet, so he does it. Right? He, he takes off his outer gar- garment, and he does the work of a slave, and washes his disciples' feet. These same disciples who, even though they spent however much time with him, regularly jockeyed with one another about who's going to have the best seat in the house when the kingdom comes. Jesus assumed the form of a slave. And he took on the likeness of man. This phrase doesn't mean he merely became like a human, but rather he who was always God became what it was to be human as well. The point of this in the hymn is that when people saw Jesus, they didn't see some glowing whatever, but they saw a person, they saw a human. People recognized Jesus as a human. And often when we read the Gospels, when when he teaches or interacts with people, people were often left asking questions like, what kind of person is this? What kind of man is this? And then Paul takes us right to the bottom of this text here, where he says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. One writer helpfully says to us that Jesus' whole life was marked by humility. Look at his birth. He wasn't born in an influential city like Alexandria or Rome or Athens or Jerusalem, but he was born near a feeding trough in Bethlehem. And he lived for 30 years in relative obscurity. And then in his earthly ministry, he was known for loving, unlovable people and humbly serving others. At his death, he was nailed to a cross alongside two criminals. Jesus humbled himself voluntarily. Neither Herod, nor Pilate, nor the Romans humbled him. No one can humble Jesus. Jesus humbles us. He chose to empty himself. Therefore, don't look at this passage and feel sorry for Jesus as if he were to be pitied. For Jesus stands over us. We don't get to stand over Jesus. He humbled himself, and we too must humble ourselves before him. We too need to choose humility. And finally, we see that he humbled himself even to the point of death and death on a cross. This was the most vile, the most humiliating death of all that day in crucifixion. This was the rock bottom of Christ's humanity and the most gripping part as well of his obedience. Crucifixion was such a a humiliating thing that, that Roman citizens weren't allowed to be executed. 
in that way. It, was, it wasn't good enough even for their worst criminals. The Jews as well believed that a person was cursed if he died by crucifixion. And Paul writes about that in Galatians 3. For most, the cross was total and complete embarrassment. Yet that's what Jesus came and did. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles, that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, that Jesus came uh, to earth to be one of us. He explains the descent and ascent of Christ this way. Lewis says, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being and into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has, has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great and complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or, he says, one may think of a diver first reducing himself to near nakedness and then glancing in midair and then gone with a splash, vanishing rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into death-like region, the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. That's the story of Jesus, how he came, he left everything and went down to the bottom. We've looked at his humiliation. Now let's look at his exaltation, how he ascends to the highest place. In verse 9, Paul says, he hinges again on this, this, for this reason or therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name. Because of his work, God the Father has, has exalted, has super elevated Jesus. He's in a class of his own. No one else has made it to this point. Jesus re-entered the glory he once enjoyed with the Father before the world existed, for all eternity before, and someday the millions and billions who give him praise will join him there, giving the Father glory. But Paul says God gave him this name that's above every name. Now, what is that name? There's a lot of sort of scholarly discussion around whether the name was Jesus or Lord or Christ or or whatever else it might be. But many suggest that, that Lord or Christ is maybe the most convincing But either way, Jesus has the same status, the same exalted lordship as God the Father does. He went all the way down to the cross and then all the way back up as king over all. We read this again throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus was exalted above every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching, he said that, that following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Christ was exalted to the right hand of God. And the fact that Jesus is exalted means that he rules and reigns over all. And we read that in Hebrews chapter 1. This is a, a universal lordship. And for the church of Philippi, this means Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And everyone will have a chance to give account to him. What's astonishing for us who are believers is that we know him. We can know Jesus. We can know the king of glory. And the wonder is that that Jesus, who is the king of glory, the Lord of all, who is in a class by himself, also knows us and loves us. Next, as we head towards the end, we see that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In response to Jesus' universal lordship, everyone will bow and confess 
his name, confess his lordship, that he is over us. By giving Jesus the name Lord, God declared once again the godship, the deity of Jesus. This phrase that Paul uses, that Jesus is Lord, is probably the earliest Christian confession, the earliest, okay, do you believe what it means, what what we're talking about? Jesus Christ is Lord, okay, that's what we're talking about. It's shorthand for the gospel, we see that in Romans 10 and 2 Corinthians 4 as well. And so every week when we gather and we worship and encourage one another with the gospel, and we too proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are uniting ourselves with generations and generations and centuries and centuries of Christians that have gone before us. And when we make that our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're also anticipating a future where everyone else will also affirm this. Paul says everyone will bow and confess his lordship, including those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And one other commentator says this, who, this hymn excuse me, includes every conceivable habitation of personal beings. Some will confess Jesus as Lord with great joy and humility. Others will confess him as Lord with despair and anguish. Everyone from every age, though, the text teaches us, will do the same. And so this hymn has an already not yet dimension to it. We will confess him as Lord now, but we will also look forward to that future day when we will live with him and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. History isn't just like a treadmill going nowhere. It's all pointing towards that day. Finally, Paul writes that we will do this to the glory of God the Father. The end of verse 11. Jesus' whole life and death and resurrection and ascension all bring glory to God as Father. And here we see that even among the Trinity, there is no rivalry. There is only delight and honor. And it's remarkable when we think about it that with our human brains, we think about it, I guess, that, that Jesus didn't do this to get glory for himself. Even in his exaltation, he, he, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He remains the, the model of humility for us, humbly honoring God the Father. So what do we do with this? Let me leave us with a final few application points from this passage. The first one, and I mentioned it a bit earlier, this is a great section to memorize. This is a, this is a hymn. This is a, a, an early creed. This is a, a great gospel few verses. It's good for us to have these sort of uh, portable theology passages in our minds so they go with us wherever we go. And Philippians 2 is loaded with them, these verses especially. Grab a sheet at the back and, and, and dwell on it. Memorize these things so that this truth is always with us. Second application point, we need to believe this passage. We need to look into our hearts and say, do we actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? It tells us that one day we will. Do we today live that out? Do we, do we submit ourselves to his rulership, his lordship over our lives? Or are we living for us? We can join with the saints from all ages and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Third, we can follow the lifestyle presented in this passage. There's a, this is the attitude and lifestyle that we should pursue. This is a, this is a letter teaching us how to follow Jesus and, and what is good for us. Philippians will give us several good examples of people we can follow, but Jesus is the best model. And finally, we need to tell the world about the message of this passage. This is a a missional passage. It gives us something to do. It tells us what we are called to do. The mission of the church is to go and tell the world that Jesus is Lord. 
so that they have the opportunity to confess and believe him as Lord, and they then will be saved, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. So as we recognize and and memorize and believe and, and follow this passage, let us to adore Jesus. Let our minds be on him. Let our attitudes reflect him. Uh, Let our actions also reflect him. And all of this, not for our glory, but for the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to, to submit to it, to hear from it. Thank you that you don't give up on us, but you're always at work in us, that you will, you will complete the work you've started in us, as we read a few weeks ago in chapter 1. Jesus, thank you for your example, that even though you had glory above all glory in heaven, you humbled yourself and you came as a servant, showing us what it means to truly live, to rightly relate to God and others and creation, to come and serve, that you were one of us, And you're obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. And you took all the ways that we have uh, believed in wrong things, the way we have gone our own way, the way we have trusted in things that aren't true of God and his work. And you went to the cross for those and you paid the price for those things. Thank you that you didn't stay in the grave, but three days later you were raised again, conquering our three greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, so that we can now be adopted into the family of God, that we can be called citizens of heaven, that we can be sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. Help us, too, to follow your example, to, uh, to submit to your lordship, to serve one another, not to make our name great, but to make the glory of God great in our world. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.